I did not really grow up in a Christian home, and um, I was very scared of av- ever having someone ask me to read the Bible, you know, and that may be you. Like, you know, I would love to visit a small group sometime, but you're terrified that somebody's going to ask you, like, to read the Bible in front of people or, or pray or do something like that. We don't do that to you, by the way, in our small groups. We'll never put you on the spot like that. But today is the nightmare of anyone who has to read from the Bible. It's got a million words in it that are incredibly hard to pronounce. So I'm going to do my best. But would you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9, where we're going to be reading about David's kindness to Mephibosheth. And I have to say Mephibosheth a lot today. I may call him Chef. I may call him Phoebe. I don't know. But this is, I've been to seminary, you guys. I've studied the languages. I, I know the Bible pretty well. And this one is just tough, man. I practiced it in the car all the way over here. And I, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. But I guarantee you I'm going to mess it up somehow. Chapter 9. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, said of Saul, Come to David, and, or excuse me, and Mephibosheth, the son, (laughs) See, I told you, and it's not even over... of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his faith and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore you to all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house came, became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. My dad was raised in a small town called Cynthiana, Indiana. And he grew up knowing the shame of being the son of a farmer who drank away nearly all his profits and left his family destitute. You know how small towns are, right? 
Everybody knows everybody's business. This is a town of smaller than 500 people at that time in the 1950s. And because of that way of life and that experience, my dad, when he was an adult, went out of his way to be a blessing to my cousins, many of whom were growing up in a very similar manner to the way he grew up. When I was a very young kid, about fifth, you know, five or six years old, uh, he had one of my cousins come live with him. It was a great hardship, actually. It was very difficult to have in our home. He nearly burned our house down when he was trying to grow marijuana in our basement and had, had these lights, these intense heat lamps going on down in the basement that nobody knew, and it caused a fire. When I was in sixth grade, my dad and stepmom adopted uh, two family members who were being raised in horrible poverty in an abusive situation, literally adopted them, brought them into their home, and treated them as his own daughters. When my dad died, I found boxes of old financial statements and check registers and saw example after example after example of checks he had written to some family member that was in trouble or one of his students at Purdue uh, that was in financial trouble or some uh, group that was trying to help the poor. I'm thankful for his legacy. I'm thankful, and, and he taught me the value of to whom much is given, uh, much is responsible for this people. Today we will see that the mercy and kindness of the king, the king of kings, God himself, the Lord, moved David, just a king, to be a person of kindness. That when the king came and gave mercy and grace to David, a king, just a king, it changed his life, it changed his heart, and it caused him to become the kind of person that would be filled with love and grace and mercy and steadfast kindness. And that's the proper response, friend, to the gospel. That is the proper response for us all, to, to have our hearts so moved by God's grace to us after the experiences we have had in life when we taste and see the kindness of God and his radical grace to us. How can we not in turn become a people of blessing, become a people of grace and of kindness? Today we're going to see just two points, kindness and intentionality and kindness and blessing. Kindness and intentionality and kindness and blessing. First of all, kindness and intentionality. It says this in 2 Samuel 9 verse 1, and David said, really David asked, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there anyone left? And he asks, the word kindness in English doesn't even come close to the word that's in the original language here. The, the, the word that's in Hebrew is called hesed. And it's usually translated as loving kindness, and that doesn't even do justice at all to the meaning of this word. My Old Testament professor talked about hesed so much that I literally don't remember anything else about her lectures except her saying the word hesed in her Australian accent over and over and over. That's all, pretty much, it felt like the entire class was just hesed. It's covenant faithfulness, God's covenant faithfulness to his people that they don't deserve. It's based entirely on grace and it's steadfast and it never gets up and that covenant relationship is so one-sided. God initiates the covenant, God guarantees the covenant, and God makes the covenant happen all by grace in his power and mercy. Hesed, steadfast love. 
So when David asked, is there still anyone in Saul's family still alive that I may show kindness to him? And we're talking about intentional kindness. We're not just talking about, oh, let me be nice to you and I'll pick up lunch today. This is God's steadfast covenantal love placed on humanity by grace. Then in turn, we as his sons and daughters show steadfast love to one another and to the world. Hesed. Ordinarily, when we think of showing kindness to people, we think of it in terms, at least my approach, your approach probably, <clears throat> is when something comes my way, a need shows up, somebody knocks on the door of the church in need, somebody is on the side of the road in need as I'm driving, somebody calls, a family member calls, but what I love about this passage is David asks, he's intentional about loving kindness and steadfast love. He doesn't wait for uh, one of Saul's family members to come to him and say, would you do justly to me? Instead, he says, are there anybody still alive in Saul's family? Saul is dead, of course, but Jonathan is also dead, and he goes out of the way. And if you remember the story of David and Saul, it's not a good one. Saul was the very first king of Israel, and God's blessing was removed from Saul very quickly because he was not a humble man, and then God's favor fell on David as the second king of Israel, and he was anointed as the king of Israel long before that was fully realized. David, of course, was extremely jealous, or excuse me, Saul was extremely jealous of Saul, David, and he sought to kill him. And in spite of the fact that Saul had sworn that David was his enemy, David, because of the grace of God in his life, seeks hesed. He seeks covenantal, steadfast love for the family of Saul on account of his best friend, Jonathan. So he asks, is there anyone left in Saul's family that I can bless? And he has Ziba, the servant in that home, come to him and say, there is still one of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, still alive. And he sends for him, and Mephibosheth has to be saying to himself, surely I will be killed this day on account of Grandpa Saul. <laughs> when a king in the ancient Near East would have power and take over the throne of another king, it was the practice in that culture for the entire family that was remaining to be, to be wiped out, to be killed. The, the children of, of the king would be killed. The grandchildren of the king would be killed. They would wipe out every generation that they possibly could in order that there would be no one left to take revenge. But David does not kill him, of course. He practices steadfast loving kindness. Mephibosheth comes to him and he pays homage to him and says, who am I? Who am I that I should come before your presence? And he falls at David's feet, and David says, do not fear. And he shows him such loving kindness and grace. He says, I will restore to you everything that was lost. All the wealth of your family, all of Saul's homes, all of Saul's land, all of his wealth, his servants, it's all being restored to you. And not only that, I'm inviting you into my own home every day, at every meal. You will dine at my table with me. He treated him as he was his own son. Friends, you won't believe me when I tell you this this morning, but it's true. This is 
the gospel for you. The heart of this story is the gospel. This is what happens to the person who comes and finds favor with God by faith in Jesus Christ. He is restoring us through the gospel. Now, interesting, the root of Mephibosheth's name is Bosheth, and it means shame in Hebrew. Shame. He was disabled in both of his feet. He couldn't walk. He couldn't work. He couldn't defend himself, and he felt the shame of his disease every single day. And in the ancient Near East, if you were disabled or hurt or blind or just had any disability in any way, people assumed what? God was cursing you. And it's so sad. Jesus shows us in the Gospels that it's not the curse of God. It's just it's being a human being in the fallen, broken world that we live in. And you can't piece together and tie it directly and saying God is specifically cursing that person. But he felt the shame every day. Unable to walk. Unable to work. Being made fun of, I'm sure unable to provide for yourself, unable to defend yourself. And now your grandfather's dead, he was the king. Now your father is dead and there's no one left to protect you. But this is not a story of shame. It's a story of uh, blessing and glory. Mephibosheth expected death and he got life. And he was right to expect death. This is what every other king would have done, but he didn't get death. Instead, he got forgiveness. I won't kill you. I, I will forgive you. I, I forgive you for what your grandfather did against you, but it's more than forgiveness, and this is the gospel. We always say that the gospel is that God forgives us our sins, but friends, the gospel is so much bigger than just forgiveness. The king of kings and lord of lords, when you put your hope and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, not only are your sins forgiven because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, wealth is restored to you. Dignity is restored to you. Your shame is wiped away. He's not only saying, hey, I won't kill you. You can just stay alive somewhere in Israel. No, instead, I'm going to restore to you all the wealth that was lost to you. Your lands, they're yours again. Your homes, they're yours again. Your servants, your, your, your ability to make a living, it's all restored to you. And that is the gospel, friends. In Jesus Christ, we're not simply forgiven. We're given the very righteousness of God. We are given the very righteousness of God. We are filled up with goodness. Our, the account of our soul is not in deficit, is filled. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your shame. He doesn't see the judgment that's on you. He sees the righteousness of his son and he sees you with eternal wealth in his son because of the holiness of his son and the faithfulness of his son. All that Jesus did and earned for the father as a human being for 33 years is yours as a gift. That blessed exchange. Jesus got your sin and you got his righteousness but the gospel is even better than that. It's not only that your sins are forgiven. It's not only that wealth is given to you in res restoration, Jesus' own righteousness. This is the part you just can't possibly believe is true, but it is. You're adopted into the king's house and treated as sons and daughters. In that culture, there was really nothing hardly more intimate you could be invited into than to have a meal with somebody 
We'll go out with anyone. We'll have a meal with just about anybody. And I mean, it's still a special thing to practice hospitality, invite someone into your home or say, let's go have lunch after church together. That is still a gift, but let's face it. It's not the same culturally. In this culture, if I sat down with you for a meal or you invited me into your home, you would be saying to me, I love you. I am accepting you into my life. And when David says to him, I invite you into my home at my table, he's saying, we will eat together daily. What happens at the dinner table, friends? We don't know because we don't do that anymore, but what happened at dinner tables before? People would talk. People would share their story. How was your day? What, what trials did you face today? What, what was good for you today? This is what we do around the d- d- dinner table. What was hard? What was good? How can we pray for you? Relationship. The gospel is that you're invited into relationship. David is inviting Mephibosheth into his life, a relationship. This is the gospel. The penalty of sin is death, and we deserve death, but in Christ we receive eternal life instead of eternal death. That is the good news. And friends, until you own that, the gospel will have no power for you. Paul said the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. It's the power of God, but it will seem powerless to you until you, you, you children, you students, you college student, until you, not the faith of your fathers or mothers, your faith where you see your own need, that the penalty of sin is death. And that's what you deserve, but in Christ, that's not what you receive. Instead, you receive all that I've been mentioning. Until that reality breaks on you, it will have no power over your heart and over your life, but as we meditate on the goodness of the gospel, as we meditate on that, as we think on that, as we work it out, its implications, it should change us and morph us into a people who practice said, God's loving kindness, his steadfast loving kindness. It says in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus said this, of course, do not Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Let me stop there for just a second. God created the material world and he said it was good. So Jesus is not anti-material world. He is, he is not saying that money is the root of evil. It's not greed is and, our, and the human heart is the problem. The earth is not the problem. Stuff is not the problem. It's what our heart does with it. But our problem is in our heart, we take the stuff of earth and we elevate it and give it eternal power almost and say that's where true treasure is. But Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot enter and break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. What if a stockbroker came to you and said, if you can just free up a little bit of money, For the next five years, I guarantee you, I will provide you wealth through that investment for the rest of your life. A five-year investment that could provide wealth for the rest of your life. What would you think about that? First of all, I'd think you're scamming me. I guarantee it. This is not true. But let's just for a minute imagine, no, it's true. And this financial advisor sits down with you and looks at your finances 
and he says to you, you know, it's going to take some sacrifice on your part in order to do this. You're going to have to like stop spending on some things over here. You're going to have to like really figure out what you value and what you need, and you need to invest in this investment because if you do at this rate for the next five years, at the end of it, you will have more money than you'll need for the rest of your life. You can retire, you can serve doing any job or anything that you want to do because you're going to have all the money you need. Wouldn't you make that investment? And in a sense, this is what Jesus is saying is, in one hand, we're investing in the wrong things in life. We're pouring all of our time, our emotional energy, our money, our thought life, our imagination into the stuff of earth, expecting that to have a great reward. And it will be a reward in a sense in this life, let's face it. And I am very much for retirement accounts and saving and investments. I I practice these things myself. But at the end of the day, Jesus is saying our lives, even if you're blessed with longevity and live to 90, 100 years old, it's like that compared to eternity. Jesus is talking about an internal, eternal investment. Eternity is longer (laughs) than 80, 90, 100 years. So much so that in eternity, we will look back and look at our our lives, and it will feel like vapor. And Jesus says, where are you investing? There is an eternal investment. If you will sacrifice now, if you will focus your investment now, there is a reward that is coming that is eternal, eternal. And the people that figure that out and begin to invest their lives in that way are blessed with such great joy, more joy and more pleasure than we realize. Sometimes we need to be inspired by radical examples in order to get going on stuff that's important in life. This friend of mine told me about a documentary because I've been telling him, like, I really have got to quit eating so much and I got to get focused and I need some inspiration for my diet. I need inspiration for working out. And he goes, I've got just the documentary for you. It's about this guy that decided to not eat any food for 40 days. (laughs) I said, well, that sounds insane. And he said, yeah, but he's like, two or three hundred pounds overweight, so like he could do it. Most of us could never do that. So I watched this crazy, radical uh, documentary. I'm not even saying I can recommend it. It wasn't that great, but it was this radical idea, and it has helped me in the last two weeks as I've tried to curb my appetite to say, well, if that guy can go for 40 days with no food and only water, I can say no to, you know, a 2,500-calorie diet today. I can go to the gym and work out. If he can do that, but what's wild is he didn't do it for 40 days. He did it for 55, and he, break, he broke the world's record. Don't do that, by the way. <laughs> so I'm about to tell you a radical story of radical hesed in light of God's grace and mercy and kindness to you. And while many of us may never practice this kind of steadfast love and mercy and covenant goodness to people in light of God's covenant relationship to you, this example is so radical and so powerful. I hope it inspires every one of us to walk out of here and walk in this steadfast love and kindness for other people. I want to tell you about some friends that I have named Scott and Kathy Rosenau. They were members of our church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Scott and Kathy had four biological kids, and two of them had very, very grave special needs, one physical, one more emotional and, and, uh, and educational. 
and they had four kids, and they were this homeschool family in our church, and they were just doing their life, and they came to the elders and said, we want you to pray with us because we are praying about adopting a child from uh, outside of the United States, but our caveat is this. This child has to have pretty extreme uh, difficulty in life and a, and a pretty extreme disability for us to adopt because that's our heart. We feel like the Lord is calling us to adopt a child that literally maybe nobody else in the world would adopt. A child who's blind, a child who really is in a wheelchair or suffering some great disability. So they began to pray and they adopted a child with a very severe disability. About a year later, they came back to the elders and said, that was so fun. We want to do that again. Will you pray with us? Because we want to do that again. And so they adopted a child who was blind. And about a year later, they came back and goes, that was so much fun. We want to adopt another child. And they found another child. And then it kept going and going and going. They got to like six children that they had adopted. Their house was a very normal-sized house in Ohio. And I mean, it is now packed with their own four children, biological, and the six children they've adopted. It has literally turned into an orphanage. And in a sense, I started going like, I don't know if this is healthy for them. You know, you read boundaries and you just start thinking about. And then they kept going and going. We thought six was a lot, but I want to show you a picture, okay? I'm not sure this is all of them, to be honest. I think this is just the current group that's currently living in their home right now. They've had uh, people donate money. They, They started a nonprofit. They have literally saved the lives of all these children and, and I, like I said, I, don't th- I know for a fact this is not all of them. These are just the current children that are in the home. Many have gone on, graduated from high school or in college. I kept saying, you can't do this again. This is ridiculous. Like, you know, the state's going to shut you down. Um, you're, you're, you must have some psychosis to keep doing this. I mean... What need do you have that's unmet in your heart that you have to keep doing this? At some point, financially, you can't possibly do this. This can't be good even for these children because it's just too much. And they were like, you're crazy. We can't stop because it's so much fun. It's so good. And they kept blessing, and they still keep blessing. Their ministry is called the Shepherd's Crook. I can't tell you the number of people in Ohio that have adopted special needs children from all over the world because of them. This is just a small group of the kids that they've adopted, but this only represents a very small fraction of the children that have been adopted from around the world through the shepherd's crook. But that's what the gospel does. The gospel takes sinners like you and me that are so selfish. We're so selfish. And it turns us around and says, no, if God in his kindness and mercy can do that for you, then how can you not in turn be a person of blessing? And as we close, church, I want to call us to to intentional kindness. And not English language kindness, the Hebrew kind. Because of the steadfast love of God towards you. We must become intentional in our blessing. And I want to talk to you about what we call the blessed rhythms. Our church is involved in a ministry called Surge, and many of you have been through Surge School. And when you become a Surge School participant, it would take too long for me to fully explain this, but this is a discipleship opportunity that we have at this church. 
we, we join with about 100 other people throughout the city, and we have a small group that meets, and we go through books and pray and read together. But one of the things we do throughout the year is talk about the blessed rhythms on a weekly basis. How were you able to practice the blessed rhythms? What are they? First of all, bless. Blessing is the intentional uh, act of blessing a, a, a fellow follower of Christ or an unbeliever in some tangible way that you are proactive in blessing, that you're not just gonna wait for blessing or some opportunity to come your way, that you're gonna intentionally say, I will be a blessing to somebody this week. I will tangibly bless somebody this week. And then some of the ways to think about this, and it's an acronym, but listen, bless, and then listen is the L. Bless somebody by offering the gift of listening When is the last time you sat down with somebody and you're sharing your heart and you really felt like you were listened to? That the person didn't interrupt a million times and say, oh, here's your problem, this is what you need to do, and just gave you the gift of listening. What a gift. So so rarely given. And the other part of listening is, will you, as a follower of Jesus, listen to the word of God in your own heart on a routine basis? Listen, not just read and study, but listen. What is God saying to you through his word and through his people and calling you to be a blessing to other people? Bless, listen, eat. Bless somebody by intentionally sharing a meal with them. Just like we said in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it was a gift to invite somebody into your home. It still is to intentionally practice hospitality, to share a meal, to maybe even think intentionally at your workplace. You probably go out to eat, many of you, if you're in business, uh, many times a week. What if you intentionally think about who is God calling you to share a meal with? And you don't have to get all preachy either. What if you just take somebody that may not know the Lord to lunch at, from work and you gather there in that place and you just don't act weird <laughs> and, and, and just be a follower of Jesus that like shares a meal and asks great questions about their life. They may in turn ask you to share and they may even ask about your faith eventually. If you keep blessing them with the gift of listening and tangible blessing, they may say, hey, what's different about you? You may get the chance to share the hope of glory that you have. Bless, listen, eat, speak. People live in shame how few blessings there are that people are given, how few kind words are said over people. We get a chance to speak in Jesus' name. Be his blessing by being one who speaks to God in prayer about those people you're being intentional with and then speaking to them about the hope of glory that you have in Jesus Christ, but also just speaking good things to them. Who else will do that for them if you don't? Blessing them with your words. And finally, Sabbath. Listening, eating, speaking, and Sabbathing. Friends, if you're not resting in the gospel, then you don't have anything to give to people. How can we give something to somebody we don't have? We're called into Sabbath. Of course, the rest of the gospel, the resting that we do in the good news of Jesus, but also that tangible Sabbath. Today is the Sabbath for Christians. It's the Sabbath day. The Lord rose from the dead on this day. We practiced a rest. We're we're here today resting in the gospel. I'm gonna tell you today, go out and do nothing. 
except have fun with your family. Take a walk. You won't do it. It's too hot. Uh, walk around your house inside. Pray together. Sing together. Do something fun together that's restorative. Have your soul repaired so that when you're out in the world this week, you have something to give somebody. Listen, eat, speak, and Sabbath. The gospel is that good. This is our vision, church that we would be a people of blessing, intentionally blessing, not just waiting for things to come to us, but us going to the need because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that in your loving kindness, your said towards us, you did not wait for the need to come to you. You went directly to the need that as soon as sin entered the world, you immediately, you immediately began to work your redemption in Jesus Christ. You began to have a plan that where you would redeem and restore all that was broken. We thank you for your intentional love for us in the gospel. And because of that reality, Father, would we in turn become a people filled with grace, mercy, steadfast love, and, and all of your goodness towards us. May it then flow out of us to others. We repent of our selfish hearts that protects our time, that protects our, our wallet, that protects all the walls and the barriers that we've put up, Lord, and our lack of faith and our small hearts. Lord, we repent. And we pray, make us servants in your name, in Jesus' good name. Amen. Friends, we get to come